was a little confused. So I um, I um, was waiting at three o'clock this afternoon for the meeting to start. I, I had the Tasnua numbers and I, um, I figured it by about 10 after three. Well, actually, no, it was sort of like closer to two minutes after three. I said, okay, I got the time wrong. And I fretted a little bit for the rest of the day. Anyway, I am a sober alcoholic and my name is Lloyd. And today marks uh, 13,973 days since I've had a drink of alcohol. That is um, 38 years and almost three months. My first day sober was the 17th of February, 1985. I was 38 years old at that time and 76 now. And some of you here have heard my story more than once before, but I will do it again. Um, it was funny, I got asked to share over a four day period, I got asked to, to share at four different meetings. <laughs> Every once in a while you get one of those kind of spells anyway. I'm in the middle of one of those right now. And I'm, I'm very fortunate and uh, I feel very grateful to be alive. Um, this disease kills people. It kills a lot of people. I'm just one of the lucky ones that hit a bottom. So I'll go back to my childhood, first of all. I'm from Nova Scotia originally, New Scotland, the east coast of Canada. I grew up in a Catholic family and I have 14 younger brothers and sisters to prove it. Uh, and I didn't get a lot of joy and a lot of love, et cetera, from that particular religion. I seemed to learn to feel guilt and shame and remorse and, and hopelessness because I was born apparently with original sin. Uh, you're screwed before you even start. And anything I did that was pleasurable or enjoyable was probably going to send me to hell, particularly when I turned 15 and discovered masturbation. Uh, then a couple of years later, I discovered sex with other people, which was even better, but uh, very sinful. And uh, I'd also, when I was 12 years old, the, the bishop was down and they did a whole um, confirmation thing where one, one of the things we did was we took an oath a solemn oath that we wouldn't drink alcohol till we were 21. So 15 years old, I was very immature, uh, emotionally underdeveloped. And I did try alcohol and I liked it. I loved it. I liked what it did. It took this emotionally backward 15 year old, awkward socially guy and, and the little town in Nova Scotia where I was living was suddenly the center of the world. And I was right in the middle of town. And I loved that feeling. I didn't have to grow up after that. Um, there was a lot of bipolar illness in my family. My mother developed it, and then eventually two of my brothers and one of my sisters developed it. But uh, uh, And there were, like I said, eventually there was 15 of us, but I thought I grew up in a normal family. You know, for me, it was normal. Um, but I always had this feeling all my life that if anybody ever knows what I'm really like, they'll have nothing to do with me. You know, I just, uh, I don't measure up. Um, I kept that to myself, of course. I didn't tell it to other people. And I was, because I was the oldest, I was my mother's favorite. So I got uh, any breaks that were coming in the family, I got them. You know, I was the oldest, so I got the new clothes, so to speak, and all that stuff. And, uh, but I still felt sensitive and I felt that adults didn't treat me very well. And that, you know, if I, when I grew up, I was going to be kinder to people and ta-da, 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 ta-da. But uh, there was alcoholism in the family, my mother's side, mostly. Uh, three of my uncles died with the disease. One of them drowned when he was 48 and he was drunk. One of them burned, set his house on fire when he was drunk. The age of 50 and one of them died of cirrhosis at the age of 53. I carried on into my generation. I became an alcoholic. My second youngest brother, 19 years younger than me, number 14 of the 15 of us, he drank himself to death at the age of 49 about eight years ago and he came to some meetings. He went to a treatment center. He said, I know so much now I'm going to be okay. But unfortunately, knowing this program is not going to um, do very much good unless we actually do the freaking program. Um, so I dropped out of high school, 
uh, not because I wasn't bright, but because I wasn't um, disciplined and didn't know how to study. I didn't have to study when I was younger. And by the time I hit my um, high school and we really needed to put some application to it and, and work a little harder, I didn't want to do it. I didn't have the discipline. Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book says we are undisciplined people. And it, it applies whether we're secular or traditional. We're still a bunch of undisciplined people. At least I certainly was before I got to the program. I got my first car when I was 19 years old and my cousin taught me to drive it because we didn't have a family car because with all those kids, dad couldn't afford one. He worked steady. He had a good job. He was a captain on ferry boats between Nova, the mainland of Nova Scotia and Cape Breton Island. And unfortunately, I put the Cancer Causeway across in 1954 and that took away the ferry boats. So he became a, a toll collector, but he still worked steady and he didn't drink. So I got the first car in the family. And it lasted me, it was a 62 Pontiac, you know, three on the tree, you know, a, a manual transmission and lasted me seven weeks. I got it, it was, it was two years old when I got it, it was four years old, yeah, four years old. And uh, I went to a dance one night and I went to the bootleggers and I had a bottle of my own. And I had two of my brothers and three of my friends in with me when I, when I put the car off the road into the Atlantic Ocean. I tried to do a 90 degree turn on a dirt road at 70 miles an hour. I landed upside down in about five feet of water. And we all managed to wade ashore. And I was in there, I was trying to get the window, the door open first on the driver's side. And then I, I realized, I remember somewhere, you got to sort of, you know, open the window because you can't get the door open if you're underwater. And so I managed to get my window open. And I kicked against a guy who was sitting beside me in the front seat to, to sort of give me the impetus to get out and, and up to the, and, and walk to, to the shore. And I remember thinking, somebody's got to survive this and I hope it's me. I wasn't concerned for my two younger brothers or my three friends. But we all, all managed to get out of the car and out of the water, and none of us were injured. And at home that night, the RCMP were about 20 miles away, and I phoned it in and said, look, I put my car into the into the water, and it's it's still there. And they said, was anybody hurt? And I said, no. They said, was drinking involved? Any alcohol? And I said, no. They said, come over and report it in the morning. Yeah, that's an awfully big break to get, you know. They, they ringed me out a bit when I went over there, because they said, it's young punks like you getting drunk and and reckon their cars, it's putting the insurance rates so high. <clears throat> but they hadn't, they had been too busy, I guess, or something the night before to come over and, and, and ping me to the wall. And I was going into Collins Bay Penitentiary as a, the outside GSR much, much later in my life, but at the time I was about 40. And I heard a guy tell me that that same summer of 1966, he stole a car in St. Catharines, Ontario. And he drove it, he was over in Welland, which is a few miles away, and he had four friends in with him. And the police started to chase him and he didn't stop. And he put that car in the Welland Canal and the other four people drowned because he put it into 50 feet of water instead of five feet of water. The only difference between him and me was the, the depth that the car went into. So again, I, I realized just how lucky I had been. I had another car within a week and I was really annoyed that some people wouldn't drive with me to dances anymore. Uh, but I just kept on. I mean, down there in Nova Scotia at that particular time, Nothing was close if you're going to a dance or any sort of social thing or whatever, you know. You know. So I drove drunk at least hundreds of times, perhaps even you know, one or two thousand, a lot. I never got uh, charged with impaired. I was always very polite. I got stopped a couple of times. This is back before they had the breathalyzer. And if I could be polite to the cop and didn't slur my words, I got away with it a couple of times. And uh, I worked on the waterfront when I was going to high school. And after I dropped out, I got a construction job. Worked for three years or so as a an apprentice insulator working with fiberglass and asbestos. I've got the lungs to prove it. I've got moderate asbestosis and about 40% of the lung capacity I should have now, which makes me still nervous about COVID. 
Uh, then I was in, I moved up to Halifax from my little hometown. I met this woman while she was, she was 19 year old. She was a, a, you know, a girl really, I was 24 by this time. And we got along real well. She damn near drank me the night I met her. She'd come down with three of her friends, these four young women to visit. A couple of friends of theirs who had moved to Halifax and I happened to be living in a house with one of these guys who eventually became my brother-in-law. <clears throat> so we all went out to drink together and uh, I had my eye on the blonde, but this was uh, this dark haired woman who you know, she was matching me drink for drink. And when the bars closed, we went home and we climbed into bed together. And after a little while, she sort of, she threw up. <laughs> I said, ah, I won. I won. I wasn't so upset that she threw up in my bed, but I was just glad that I'd won because I figured I, I, I outdrank her. She was going to. So it was very nice. The next day, she helped me go to the laundromat and wash my sheets and all that sort of stuff. And we got along pretty good. And I eventually moved up to Toronto to be with her in, in 1971. And I haven't lived in Nova Scotia since then. Um, we were together for four and a half years during that period of time, after about three years or so, uh, one weekend. I'd gotten drunk on Saturday night. We had some people over. <clears throat> she said, um, you're becoming an alcoholic. You're going to drink yourself to death. I'm not going to stay and watch you do it. It's either me or the booze. And so I um, I stopped. I stopped drinking. Didn't consider going to AA. Didn't consider changing anything else. I made her responsible for making my decisions because, you know, God help me if I was wrong and uh, and keeping me entertained. And she didn't, you know, that, that, went, that said okay for a while. But she moved down to Kingston, the city I'm in now to go to law school when I came down with her a few months later because I found out she and a, another guy that we knew were sharing an apartment because they were both going to law school. My friends all said, you're nuts. I was sleeping together by Christmas. I guess they were sleeping together by the end of September. And I found out sometime in October. So I quit my job in Toronto and I moved down to Kingston and uh, kicked him out of the apartment. And I, uh, you know, we were there for a while. I, I started making jewelry and working for myself. and. Um, uh, like I said, she eventually got rid of me anyway. She did it as kindly as she could, but she definitely um, eased me out. And um, I was like, for six months, I was like, somebody cut me off at the knees, you know, because I thought this was the forever relationship. I didn't know how to work on a relationship. I just thought we had this sort of spiritual or whatever, you know, just sort of like we were, we were meant to be together. And unfortunately, you can't stay together without work. And I wasn't capable of doing the work at that time. And so after we split, I guess about, I lasted about two to three months before I started drinking again. It was early October. I decided I would hitchhike to the West Coast to see the West Coast. In the early 1970s, you could actually hitchhike. A lot of people were doing it. And um, and uh, I got as far as Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, before I started to drink. And I I, uh, I tried for a day to get out of there and wasn't getting any rides, went down to Spend the night, you know, I've got a hotel room, $10 a night, and uh, the washroom down at the end of the hall. And in the basement, they had this uh, uh, this uh, this beer bar. And so I went down and had a few beers. And the next couple of months, I spent wandering around the West. I had a nice one week long relationship with a woman in Edmonton. And uh, the dope crop had just been harvested all across the prairies and in, in British Columbia. And I uh, I discovered before I went, made the trip, the reason I went was because I, I knew people from, um, from Halifax who had moved to. Some of them were in Winnipeg. There was people I knew in Saskatoon and Regina. I had a brother in uh, in, in uh, Edmonton and um, knew a couple of people that had moved to Banff and then I knew a couple of people that had moved to Vancouver. So I visited friends all over the place and uh, um, nothing really bad happened. What it became after that was I became a, um, um, I'd taper on. I was a tapering on drunk. 
I'd have a drink or two, and then the next day I'd have a couple more. And by the end of the week, I'd be drinking a 26-ouncer. And then by the end of the next week, I'd probably be on a 40-ouncer a day of hard liquor. I love the hard liquor because, of course, I got to there a lot faster than beer or wine. And uh, I would periodically stop for a couple of weeks or maybe three weeks or something like that because I'd either scared myself bad enough or I'd, uh, I'd, uh, I'd, I was too broke or I'd gotten sick or whatever, you know. And I met another woman about a year and a half after the split with the um, with the first woman, Toby. I um, I met uh, Penny, and um, she had been a customer for my jewelry. She was just finishing up her residency in psychiatry. She'd gone through medical school and was doing finishing up her psychiatric training. And she had bought a little bangle bracelet for me. And eventually those things will break because you're opening and closing them a lot to get them on. And she took these two pieces of silver down to my little stand in the market and said, can you make me a silver crucifix? And I thought, why would somebody as being trained as a psychiatrist want something as superstitious as a crucifix? Because I was, you know, like I said, I've been an atheist from the time I was 15. So I thought of her as kind of a religious nut. And so I did, I made it. And then a couple of months later, I had um, uh, an incident where I had been born with a heart defect. It was an extra bundle of fiber that acted like a short circuit sometimes. And um, so one night it's like it started beating real strange. And I was in bed with actually with a woman who uh, was a friend of mine and we were sort of kind of getting it on. And all of a sudden my heart goes wacky. And I said, got to call a taxi. And we got a taxi, went down to the hospital and we'll, one o'clock in the morning, I had a cardiac arrest in the emergency department. And I was out apparently for about 40 minutes, but they were resuscitating me the whole time. And it was kind of an awful thing for an atheist because I seemed to go somewhere. I just, some people talk about like going through a tunnel. For me, it was like going through a vast black space. And I met these shimmering beings of light and I felt love and warmth and welcome. And I felt like a little puppy dog, you know, just wagging my tail and going, oh boy, oh boy, this is great. This is good. And I didn't see what form I had either. I didn't think to look or to check. And there was no fear or anxiety or anything like that. It was just a very positive experience. And then the next thing you know, I'm going to come pulled away from them because I had a feeling I was going towards something I couldn't come back from, but I wanted to keep on going. But I pulled away from them. I got this little feeling from them. Don't do anything stupid just to get back here. And uh, the next thing you know, I'm unconscious for a few seconds and they got the tubes in my throat and they're, they're, they're hitting me with the, 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 uh, the paddles, uh, you know, with the shocks and they cracked most of my ribs right at the sternum. And, uh, and, um, then I'm out again. The next thing I know, I'm going down the hallway with the ceiling going by and they take me to the uh, cardiac care unit. Yes, uh, so I'm, I'm lying there in the hospital and thinking, well, maybe that religious nut would like to hear about this. So I gave her a call and she came over to talk. And uh, uh, so I was telling her about this experience and she kept telling me about what a terrible time she was having finding a relationship in Kingston. She said, when I finish my training later in the year, I'm probably going to have to move away because there's just no, no men here in this town. Made a little note in my head, call this woman when you get out of the hospital. And I did. And we've been together now for 45 years. I drink, I drank the first seven years. I wasn't drinking when we first got together for a couple of weeks. She didn't see me drinking then. And um we got together probably the first time we what they say these days hooked up or whatever. I think it was like the 29th of October or so. And um and the second of November was my birthday. So she gave me this really nice birthday card. And then it was a key to her two-seater sports car. She had one of these little Fiat X19s, just a little two-seater with a you know standard transmission, which I could drive quite well. So I said, aha, there's, there's something going on here. We're gonna, I think we're gonna make it. But as I said, for the first seven years I would drink. And uh I made jewelry and covered my share of the expenses, but she did all the other things. Like she took me to Hawaii, she took me to Puerto Rico, she took me to 
um, Tahiti and Bora Bora and, and all the things I wasn't going to be able to do on this. Uh, plus, I fit in with the university crowd because although I only had a grade 10 education, I could do something that they respected, which was creative and making jewelry, you know, doing my own little designs and things like that. And, and so I just fit into that crowd pretty well. Um, and two years before I hit my bottom, I, uh, I, um, Penny was talking about how embarrassed she sometimes was by my drinking. Well, I frightened her sometimes when I drank. And I had a buddy who was in the same uh, situation and I had my little jewelry shop in what should have been the dining room of our apartment. And um, his fix, helped fix up a display case for me. And he came up, I was gonna pay him, so he came over. And I said, how are you and Julie doing, Barry? And he said, oh, things are a lot better now. He says, I'm going to AA. And I had that feeling Bill Wilson talks about in the big book when his buddy, Abby Thatcher comes to visit him and says he's, he's gotten religion. I said, oh, Jesus, Barry. He said, I said, I got a bottle of Irish whiskey here. He says, oh, I haven't stopped drinking. He says, I'm just going to AA. So um, I um, had a drink with him and then we had another drink. And I think on the third drink, either he gave me the idea or I thought myself, I said, well, if it works for you, maybe it would work for me. So I put a sign on the apartment door because my wife was out saying, go into an AA meeting. <laughs> I was playing this for all it was worth, you know. I didn't put signs up there for anything else I was doing, but I did on that one. <clears throat> and we went to an AA meeting and I probably went to about six meetings in a 10 day period or so. And there's lots of people from the East Coast there. They say, you don't have to be from the East Coast of Canada to be an alcoholic, but it helps. There's a lot of us down there. And um, Penny stopped talking about how my drinking bothered her. And for the next two years, I hid my bottles. I lied. I did everything I could to maintain the relationship, but at the same time to drink. Um, so finally, it came to a head in February of 1985. I was uh, she was out of town for a couple of days doing volunteer work. She was part of an organization called Interval House that that uh, that provided shelter and food for for women in battered situations. And uh, and uh, so they went to the head of provincial conference. So she was away. I think Wednesday, Thursday, and she was coming back Friday night. And I woke up Friday morning. I've been drinking the two days she was away. I had a hangover, a pretty bad one. I didn't have hangovers when I was a teenager, but this time in my late 30s, I was getting them. And so I said, if I just have one vodka and orange juice, you know, I'll be able to straighten around a bit. And when she comes home tonight, I'll be pretty sober and I'll, I won't drink anything on the weekend. And then Monday, I'll sneak a bottle in. That was my plan for the future. And um, I had a little sign that says back in five minutes from a little jewelry shop. And um, the liquor store was a block and a half away. So by the time five o'clock rolled around and I shut things down, I was on my third Mickey of vodka. And I went to the hockey game that night as I was, had planned to do. And um, there was a bar at the um, the auditorium and I had some more drinks there. And I remember being in a good mood when I when I started off, went to the hockey game. But as I was walking, staggering home, I should say, down Princess Street in Kingston it was mostly downhill for a few blocks. And, um, and uh, I was getting into a kind of a bad mood because I said, this might be the straw that breaks the camel's back. I show up there drunk and uh, she's going to be bitterly disappointed. And these people ahead of me were sort of walking along, two guys and a gal. And one of them turned and saw me staggering along and said something to the other two. And all three of them just stopped and looked at me and laughed. And I felt such rage and such hatred and such frustration. And it was like everything that had been inside of me for years and years and years uh, just, just, just poured to the surface. And um, I followed them around the corner in a side street about half a block from where I lived and then um, opened up what the only weapon I had, which was a Swiss army knife. I got that little weapon open and I got a little closer to them and one of them turned again and saw me staggering after them with this knife. I let out a yelp and all three of them ran. 
to the police station about two blocks away. If they'd been tougher people, I would have been eating that knife that night. If I'd been in the States, I might have had a gun and they, they would have died. As I, I wanted to kill them, but I had a spear, I would have run them through. All I had was a stupid Swiss Army knife. And again, I went into one of the federal penitentiaries here in the Kingston area 25 years later or so. And this guy, after I gave him my talk, said, don't believe you can't kill somebody with a Swiss Army knife. He said, I've done it. So again, I was very, very fortunate. I, I staggered home and my wife was bitterly disappointed. And I slept in the extra bedroom that night. And uh, the next morning I woke up and said, ooh, relationship might be uh, some serious trouble. But my uppermost thought was I wanted to kill people last night. And if I could have, I would have. And all of a sudden, I went from being a, a guy who'd said for 11 years, since the first, ever since the first woman had sort of brought it to my attention, okay, I got a problem with alcohol. If it ever gets bad enough, I'll stop. All of a sudden, it was bad enough. I went from, I've just got a problem with drinking, to I'm an alcoholic, literally overnight. And uh, <clears throat> I knew I needed help, because I stopped many times where I couldn't stay stopped. So I um, took me two days to... Get to my first AA meeting, but I went back with a much different attitude than I'd had before. Um, I had some willingness and some open-mindedness. If they could keep me sober, I would even let them pray because they prayed at those meetings. And so I had to, I had to uh, accept that that was going to happen because I needed them. I needed AA more than they needed me. And so over a course of time, I began to change and grow. It wasn't instantaneous. It wasn't easy. It wasn't without fear. Um, I'd taken steps one and two that morning when I woke up. I was powerless over alcohol. My life was obviously unmanageable. And uh, I needed a higher power, power greater than myself, to restore me to sanity. Now, I didn't want to be restored to what I was when I started drinking, because that's why I started drinking. So I needed something better than that. And so here I am, 38 years old, uh, emotionally backward, 15-year-old on the inside. So I had to go through adolescence between my 38th and about my 42nd year as I worked my way through the steps for the first time. Um, after a couple of months of going to meetings, I felt, um, well, the first meeting I went to, I remember going to the hospital, the hotel to the hospital, and having to ask the security guy where the meeting was and being so embarrassed. I have to ask him about an AA meeting. But he told me where to go, and I went. And uh, I was afraid of two things that night. One was they'd, uh, they'd tell me, no, you had your chance two years ago, so get out of here. And the other one was they'd make me sit down right at the front and spill my guts that very first meeting. And neither one of those things would have been acceptable. But the other thing that would have thrown... Had me walk away would have been, they said, you got to get down on your knees and pray to Jesus if you want to get sober. But nobody said that. They said, you have to find a higher power, but you get to decide what that power is. So they gave me the latitude to come and to learn and to grow. And I learned most of what I needed to know up here at that very first meeting. They said, it's not the 10th drink or the 20th drink that, that does it for people like us. It's the first drink. It's a, if you get hit by a train, you're not killed by the caboose, you're killed by the engine. And uh, okay. And they said, you've got some sort of a bodily reaction to alcohol that most people don't have. You have a drink of alcohol and it makes you thirsty. You want another one. You get that second one and you need that third one. You get that third one into you and who knows how much more you're going to drink. So it's that first one that causes the problem. And the reason you take that first one in the first place is, it says in the doctor's opinion in the big book, you're restless, irritable, and discontent with your life, with yourself. I had that feeling, as I've said earlier, I think that if anybody ever knows what I'm really like, that have nothing to do with me. So I was hiding all the time. I was hiding from myself. I either felt okay or I didn't feel okay. I couldn't distinguish my feelings. And so I had a lot of growing up to do. After a couple of months of going to meetings, I felt like I was kind of just kind of floating along. I figured I needed to make a commitment. So I joined a group. And that taught me two things. It taught me to be accountable. And it taught me to take responsibility. 
it was you know a small fairly small group but the the two old timers had nine years so they as far as i was concerned they were old timers they said you got to be here if you remember this group an hour before the meeting starts in case a newcomer comes and you know comes a little early and there's nobody here they might go away and die and uh, they said you uh, you got to put money in the seventh tradition every week this is your own group and um you got to take responsibility and your first job is going to be making the coffee so I made the coffee for the next four months or so. And at about the six month mark, I was looking around for a speaker, but uh, for a sponsor, but none of them were none, none of them really measured up. As I'd say, so I'd focus on one guy and say, Oh, I'll get him for me, my sponsor. And then he'd do something really stupid or blow his top or something like that. And I'd say, Oh no, can't have him for a sponsor. So finally, one night after six months of so dryity, I um I um I was in a situation where I was really um, hurt by something somebody had done to me, and I really wanted revenge. This guy told me a monstrous lie to get money out of me. I've been lending little bits of money to other people during their first few months. And of course, that doesn't work very well because most of them just chronic relapse. Just they go back out again and you don't get your money back. This one guy, I just cut him off. And he came to me and he said, um, the police in Ottawa have just called me and said that my son died in a car accident. I need to go to Ottawa to identify his body, but I haven't got any money. Can you please help me out? So I gave him what I had, which was about $80 or so. And I um I felt, you know, okay, poor, poor, poor bugger, you know. And I talked to several other people that day and said, well, no, poor Bill, you know, his, his son's died and he's got to go down to Ottawa. And they all kind of looked at me funny. And I didn't clue into that at all. But when I went to my home group that night, he was chairing the meeting. And he over said, I got something to tell you. I need to tell you. He says, I lied today because I needed that money. And so he said, I, I told you a lie. I had a gun now, I'd, I'd kill myself. And I just wished I'd had a gun to give him. That's how I was feeling, you know, just like, I was just massively outraged and angry and upset. And the first old timer that came through the door that night, I said, Charlie, will you be my sponsor? And Charlie said, yes, what's going on? So I told him about the situation. He said, well, you know, that guy, he's not going to stay. He's been here many times before. He's not going to stay. He said, how you react to this is going to determine whether you stay or not. So he settled me down. He was a good sponsor for well, for that particular period of my sobriety, but he was very sick with terminal cancer. And, uh, and he died when I was sober just over a year. And uh, <clears throat> I talked then for, from, this, from the third month on to um, till I was 11 months sober, but doing that fourth step, doing that fourth step. And um, finally, I went away for a weekend and, uh, to a Cistercian monastery, strange place for an old uh, atheist to be, but there I was. And um, I took the big book in the 12 and 12, because that's what was available in those days for literature. And I took a lot of paper and I forgot there was such a thing as the, as the fifth step. And I asked my higher power to whatever that might be to help me. And I got 30 pages down that weekend. A list of fears, list of resentments, list of harms done to others. Under the harms done to others, there was sex, money, and miscellaneous. Uh, two things in code. Nobody's ever going to hear those ones. And um, I came home and put it away in the drawer. And my first sponsor, as I said, he was a very sick man, and uh, he wasn't able to help me with that. But Within a week of him dying, I got another sponsor, a big book thumper, a guy who said, yeah, do you want to get well? He didn't ask me if I wanted to stay sober. He said, do you want to get well? And I said, yes, I, I think I do, Jim. I, I do want to get well. He said, well, this is what you're going to do. You're going to ask your higher power for help each morning. You're going to thank your higher power at night if you've had a good day. And any day you don't drink, it's going to be a good day. He said, you need to contact me three times a week. And we don't talk about sports or the weather. We talk about you. He said, you got to get to three meetings a week. Uh, one of them has to be a big book study. He said, uh, there's some passages in the big book I'm going to give you. Read those every day. 
And uh, he said, you're going to have to work your way through the rest of the steps. And if you're doing anything illegal or immoral, stop. And if you're not, don't start. And so he was pretty inclusive. Uh, but he was what I needed at that time. I was more scared of Jim than I was of, of working the steps. So he listened to me for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, actually talking about I'm working on the fifth step. I'm working on the fifth step. So finally at a Friday meeting, he told me, we're going to do your fifth step on Monday. 1.30, I'll pick you up. We'll go down, sit by Lake, down by, in my car down by Lake Ontario, and you're going to do your fifth step. And I said yes, because I couldn't say no, because I was more afraid of him in some ways than I was of the fifth step. But I'll tell you how much I was afraid of that one. That morning at 10.30 in the morning, I'm in the bathroom on my knees puking because I didn't want to go and share this stuff with this guy. But I cleaned myself up and I was there waiting outside at 1.30. He picked me up, moved down by the lake. He actually opened his big book up to page 63 and read the prayer there. Um, to put himself in the proper frame of mind. He said, okay, tell me your story. He said, don't minimize, don't justify. You know, fears, resentments, harms, you know, what happened. And I spent two and a half hours telling him that, including those two things that I had in code. He didn't kick me out of his car and he didn't sort of react. Told me a couple of things about himself. Drove me back home again. I went into my apartment. I said, Jesus, that wasn't as tough as I thought it was going to be. You know, why was I throwing up about that this morning? But the, the capper for me was that night when I went to a meeting. He was in the church basement across by the, right across the, the basement by the coffee pots. I came to the door and this big, warm, loving smile lit up his face. He still loved me. He liked me. And I told him the worst stuff I could. So I started to like me and I eventually started to love me. But without doing that fifth step, I wouldn't have had that experience. So that's one of the reasons I think that the fifth step is so essential, is that it helps us to start to change. And I've listened to between 50 and 100 of them since then. And some of them were in the federal penitentiary. So I had one guy one time um, who did his fifth step with me talking about two separate murders he committed about a week apart. And he was doing a 25-year sentence. And um, it was really stupid, but I could understand you know, his reasoning. Well, thank goodness I never got quite to that bad. So anytime I listen to a fifth step now, I say, if you haven't killed more than two people, you won't tell me anything I haven't heard. Of course, since, since COVID came along, I haven't been listening to fifth steps are going to you know face-to-face -face meetings but I made up for it on zoom and uh, so step six and seven they're ongoing process of of change of, of of becoming the person that I could be eight and nine you know I have to clear up the wreckage of the past I had one amend that I needed to make I was, by that at that point I was it's been nine years since I filed a tax return because I was part of the underground economy I had long hair down over my shoulders at that time two earrings in one ear one in the other Part of the time I wore a beard and I was a hippie. <laughs> and hippies don't file tax returns. At least I didn't. And they didn't catch me. But the last year or two before I got it done, every time I walked past the tax office in Kingston, I get this knot in my gut. When are they going to figure it out? I was afraid to use my social insurance number. Didn't want it showing up somewhere. And I, uh, I had to make amends to a number of people in Kingston. I had all those younger brothers and sisters. Uh, Dad was dead by that time for about seven, eight years, and uh, I went to the cemetery down in Nova Scotia where him and a couple of my uncles were and my grandparents, and I went around making amends and talking. Uh, it, it helped me. There was one guy who ran a bar. He was the manager of a bar and restaurant. It was right in behind the place that uh, my wife and I lived in through the 70s or the late 70s. And one night I got kicked out of there because I was drunk and I said some nasty things to him. And every time I saw him for the next couple of years, I, my eyes would go down to the sidewalk when I see him coming down or whatever, and I, I felt ashamed. And you know, early on in my sobriety, before I'd actually reached step nine, I actually went and made amends with him. I said, listen, Nick, could you read a couple of minutes? And he said, oh, sure. 
I said, uh, you know, a couple of years ago when I was really drunk and said those nasty things to you and, and you kicked me out, I said, I really want to, uh, I want to, want to, want to let you know that I'm really sorry about that and that I'm sober now in AA and I wanted to clear it up. And um, he said, oh, he kind of laughed and said, if I took it serious every time somebody did that, he said, I've been nuts years ago. So I said, I've forgotten about it. And so maybe you should too. And after that, every time I'd see him, I'd feel good instead of feeling ashamed. Shame is a, you know, guilt is a feeling of you've done something bad. Shame is a feeling of that you are something bad. And the more shame that I had in my life, the less comfortable I could be. So those steps helped me to clear up the shame from my past. And um, the funny thing was that the list I had for step four of who I was resentful at was pretty much the, the same list I had in step eight of who I needed to make amends to. So I'm glad I didn't throw that away. In fact, earlier today, my wife was clearing up, my partner Penny was clearing out some uh, some old files from years and years ago. And she came to this one file and she handed it to me. And it was my um, my fourth step from 37 years ago. I hadn't seen it in you know, 20, 25 years or so. And I was still going through it. And I just came to the conclusion, boy, you were a lot smaller in those days. You know, I was a lot smaller spiritually. I was a much, much, much smaller in terms of my maturity. Um, I was a child. And uh, I hadn't seen it in, you know, like I said, well over 20 years, but it really just all it needed to do was look at it for a few minutes and say, I'm glad I'm not that little guy anymore. So it was, it was good. The steps 10, 11, and 12 really are, um, they've been called maintenance steps. You know, step 10 is I continue to take that inventory. And when I'm wrong, I admit it. Uh, 11, you know, seek through meditation or whatever to try to sort of keep my proper perspective on who I am and what I am and where I'm going. And 12 is, you know, having gotten this, I need to share this. I've heard it said that if you're not giving this program away, you're stealing your recovery. I was retired and going to five meetings a week when COVID started, and then all of a sudden everything shut down. I discovered Zoom within about a week or so, and I really started to ramp it up. I go to between 30 and 35 meetings a week. Um, this is my fifth meeting today, and um, I um, I start off usually in a meeting in Nova Scotia, and I go to a uh, meeting in uh, Malibu, California, and then uh, I go to evening meetings all over the place. And uh, I really feel a part of, I feel as if I'm doing something very useful. I'm not a 76-year-old man just waiting to die. I'm somebody who's got a sense of purpose. I'm somebody who's got a, I've got a, 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 a direction in my life. I feel I am part of rather than being apart from. I feel all of these benefits that I've gotten from this program. And I also know that I would have died in my 40s if I kept on drinking. And yet here I am at 76. There have been good times, there have been bad times in my sobriety. I was able to go back to school after I was seven years sober. And um, I did quite well at my first university course. They let me take three more. I did well at those. They allowed me to go full time. So between the ages of 44 and, and 50, I got uh, an honors BA and then a master's degree from Queen's University here in Kingston. I discovered I had a son who was 34 years old at the time I discovered it. And he, he managed to last till he was 49. I got to know them very well, him and his family and my daughter-in-law and my two grandsons. I talked to one of them on the phone today, one of my grandsons, and I talked to my daughter-in-law for about 20 minutes as well this evening. And uh, the first Christmas I went to spend Christmas with them, they had a couple of little gifts for me. One was a little box and they didn't know my AA story at that time for sure. And so this is, they said, this is something every grandfather needs. So I opened up the box, you know, all the fancy ribbons and stuff like that. It was a Swiss army knife. And I felt, I felt goosebumps, you know. Oh, maybe the higher power thinks I'm able to handle one of these now. So it's this, this one actually here. And, um, but my son uh, was diagnosed when he was 44 with, uh, with stage four 
uh, 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 bowel cancer. And he lasted five and a half years through surgeries, through chemo, through radiation, because my younger grandson was only 10 at the time he was diagnosed. And he was almost 16 when my son died about three and a half years ago. And um, so he lasted as long as he could. And I spent as much time as I could with him. He was about a seven hour drive from Kingston in, the, in, the, in Chatham, Ontario. And um, I spent a lot of time in AA in Chatham. They had one group called the Three Legacy Group that had, excuse me, 10 meetings a week. Seven morning meetings and a, a big book study one Tuesdays and 12 and 12 thir uh, Thursdays and a, and a speaker meeting on Saturday evening. I got to speak there several times. And these people loved me and embraced me and, and gave me the strength to go and do the same with my son. And um, I didn't want to take a drink through all of that. I, uh, I, um, I remember my, my son did die, uh, as I said, about three and a half years ago. He died in August. And um, about three hours after he died, they sort of cleaned him up and everything like that. We were in the, the hospice in Chatham and they had this little internal interior pool room with a, a pond and a, a little fountain. And we, we, they rolled his body in there on the, on the um, stretcher and um, the friends that were there and the family members that were there. We had an impromptu funeral, basically. And I remember touching him for the last time. His, his corpse was cooling. You know? it was, it was, I, I touched him in the forehead. And um, I said, you know, some things and everybody else got a chance to talk as well. And we lit some candles and put them in little um, little bowls and put them into the water. And, um, but I didn't want to drink. I sure wanted a meeting. I went to two the next day and I came home to Kingston, went to two more. I've also had family members die. Of the 15 children in the family, as I said, I'm the oldest. Eight of my younger siblings are dead now. The one guy who died about eight years ago of, of, of alcoholism and I've had uh, two sisters and all together and, uh, and six brothers die. <clears throat> One brother went into insulation when I was doing it and he stayed in that trade his whole life. So COVID and pneumonia got him because he, he was down to only about 30% of his lung capacity. And um, this is one of the, another reason why I don't, I don't um, go to live meetings. Uh, the pandemic is kind of over, but uh, you know, I'm still being careful. And I don't need to go to live meetings because I get so much here. I get so much in these meetings. I, um, as I said, I consider myself very, very fortunate. <clears throat> I had one sister die about seven or eight months ago, and we're going to be doing a, an internment in the cemetery in, in my hometown, Mulgrave in Nova Scotia on the 8th of July. And uh, my brother-in-law, who was married to my sister who died uh, was seven years ago, and he and I are probably going to drive down with my younger grandson to Nova Scotia. I haven't been home in 12 years, so I'll get home. We'll do the internment. I'll get to see everybody. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But six and a half, almost seven years ago, I had a heart attack and uh, I didn't realize I was having a heart attack. I waited three days to go to the hospital. But when I got into the hospital, they kept me for 14 days and they told me they were going to do open heart surgery after the third day. And uh, it was amazing what I've learned in this program. I was able to take it just one day at a time, it wasn't happening today. And I had a lot of visitors from AA. I had a lot of family come to visit me as well, although none of them live in Kingston. And um, I remember I overheard two of the nurses talking one day and said, I don't know what this guy does. He said, he must be some sort of expert in alcohol and alcoholism because all these people come in and talk to him about drinking. And um, one of the guys I sponsored had had that surgery about um, 
<clears throat> I guess six months before me. So he was able to show me, yes, this works. Yes, you know, you can stay, um, you can survive open heart surgery, which I did. And then last summer I had to get a cardiac pacemaker put into my chest. So got that too. But you know, all in all, I'm doing pretty good for a 76 year old. And again, I would have died a long, long time ago without this program. And I still go to about 20 um, traditional meetings a week, and I go to about nine or 10 secular meetings as well, because I got sober in traditional AA, and I stayed sober in traditional AA for over 30 years before I found secular. Uh, I pray with the prayers because it helps them. Life doesn't take anything away from me. When family members were dying and they were into praying, I was right there with them, praying along with them, touching the corpse or the soon-to-be corpse of one of my... My sisters, for example, my brother. Um, pretty amazing to be here to be that. Uh, when I got sick, you know, when I had the heart attack, uh, one of my nephews called me and said, you can't be sick. You're the one that helps everybody else when they're sick. So, you know, I've made an impact in people's lives, and that's a really, really nice feeling. Anyway, I probably should wrap this up, so I've got a couple of things I'd like to read. <clears throat> one of them is um, from Chapter 7, Working with Others in the Big Book. It says, Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. Life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends, this is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. There's an awful lot of wisdom in that big book. And the other thing I'm going to read is something from the book we used to use before they had uh, the daily reflections. That was called the 24-hour day book. And there's a hell of a lot of God stuff in this one. But July the 26th has something I think very appropriate. It says, when we come to the end of our lives on earth, we'll take no material thing with us. We will not take one cent in our cold, dead hands. The only things that we may take are the things we have given away. If we have helped others, we may take that with us. If we have given over time and money for the good of AA, we may take that with us. Looking back over our lives, what are we proud of? Not what we have gained for ourselves, but what few good deeds we have done. Those are the things that really matter in the long run. What will I take with me when I go? And I know I will take the love and the friendship and the fellowship of an awful lot of people in this program with me when I go, if I go anywhere. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being a part of my life. Thank you for helping me do what I can't do by myself. Alone, I cannot. Together, we can. So let's keep on proving that one day at a time. <clears throat>